My name is Chuck Myers. If you don't know who I am and what I'm doing up here, I am better known as uh, Brad's dad. And uh, with the opportunity that he had to go out and be a part of senior camp, uh, he asked if I would be willing to fill in. I said, absolutely. But to begin with, I want to share with you a part of my testimony. Now, it's not how I came to Christ, it's not what life was like before I was a believer, but it's a part of my story that happened much later. You should, see, I share this with you not as an example, not as a conclusion, not as one who has figured this all out, but this particular story, I hope, will help you to address what we're going to be talking about today. And also to understand that we deal with difficulty when we live in this world. The year was 2008. I had been pastoring for some 17 years. I had been involved in three different church bodies. We had moved from one location to another along with my family as I worked with a small group of believers in central Nebraska. At the same time, for a couple of years, I had also been doing some writing. Now, when I say some, and I still haven't come to understand this yet today, when I say some, I'm saying not a book. I was writing six to seven manuscripts at the same time. I don't know if I was writing any of them well, but I was working on all of this different stuff that I had up here that I was trying to get written down, um, Christian novels uh, was part of it. There was some fiction. But the, the main part was a curriculum on small group discipleship. And as I got further and further into this, it all began coalescing around that idea that I needed to share from the standpoint of a small church pastor what it was like to be intentional about discipleship within the small group. And so I had been writing that for some time, and I decided that I needed to take a sabbatical. My thought was, I can take a couple of years, I can finish this writing, and then I'll go back into pastoring. Fifteen years later, I'm still on sabbatical. Uh, I don't think that's the way it's supposed to work. I went back and I started looking at what exactly a sabbatical is supposed to be, and uh, it's supposed to be a time of rest, it's supposed to be a time of recovery, it's supposed to be a time of renewal, it's supposed to be a time of study and, and uh, travel, but nothing said anything about being in 15 years long. As a matter of fact, as I looked into what a sabbatical was, the, the formula is that you're supposed to be a one year of sabbatical for every seven years that you're in a job. At that rate, I should have been a pastor for 85 years to come up with the right amount of sabbatical. Something was not right or at least it felt that way in my mind. So you might not be too surprised when I say that I have often felt just a little bit 
lost as far as my chosen profession and my time of rest and recovery being almost the same length. Someday I hope to get rested up um, at this point. I guess that's all I have to say about that. But after being a believer for over 50 years, having led three different church bodies, being uh, referred to in a nebulous way of a senior citizen, as it were, a wizened elder of the Christian community, I found myself saying to anyone that said, what's up with you, this whole idea of, you know, I feel like a brand new believer. I feel like I am trying to figure out what this Christian life is all about. I don't understand. I was adrift. I was lost as far as what I was supposed to be when I grew up. You see, this sermon may not speak to a single person here, although I think Psalm 40 will have much to say to many of us. But if nothing else, it speaks to me. It is something that for 15 years now, I've been trying to figure out. And my prayer is that it'll be an encouragement to you. If you've never had the particular pain of losing a vocation, if you've never lost something of great value, you can sit back and try to answer how I should be responding to this time of life. For the rest of us, which I think are probably many, we have some things that we need to address. As we come to Psalm 40, if you have had or maybe are having a trying, painful experience, I want to explore David's answer to that from Psalm 40. If you're not experiencing a difficult situation right now, this might be even more powerful for you because there's one thing we can rest assured in, the time is coming. It's only a matter of time before we will have to go into a time of difficulty, a time of pain, a time of trial. And I am totally convinced from what we find in Psalm 40 that it is possible to prepare for that time and to be ready to respond in an appropriate way. But how do we do that? Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 40, and let's listen to the words that David writes. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. 
burning offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great! Is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Bow with me in prayer, if you would. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of this psalm might meet someone today who is struggling with a difficult situation. Heavenly Father, I also pray that if there is someone here today who is sensing that there might be a hard time coming for them, that you would provide only what you have for them to help them in the coming days. For anyone that is not in such a situation, would you impress upon them the importance of being ready? For as certainly as we do not know what the future holds, we do know that the words, in this world you will have tribulation, are just as true today as they were when Jesus spoke them those many years ago. Heavenly Father, use our time together today. Father, I think of those that are traveling, that are headed for Colorado. I would pray that you would be with those, with Pastor Brad and all the other leaders, and with the campers as well. Give them a very special time today. And Father, thank you for new seats, for the opportunity to sit here together today. I would ask that you would use this time. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we read Psalm 40, you may have picked up on the same thing I did. And that is the similarities between the psalm uh, this psalm and the one from last week. Did you pick up on any of that? Do you remember what we covered in Psalm 69? Uh, it's dynamic how similar they really are. As a matter of fact, you may feel like I did a week ago as I listened to Brad's sermon that he had already covered everything I planned on saying. It's kind of like, well, okay, we'll just let everybody go home today. 
the way that these two psalms dovetail one another is remarkable. And so it was that I began saying, okay, what's the purpose for these two psalms? What was David attempting to communicate, and what was the Holy Spirit, through, through the work that only God can do, what was he trying to say with these two psalms that are so similar, that have so many so much repetition to them. Why do we need them both? And so it was a day or two after listening to Brad's sermon last week that the Lord seemed to say to me this fact. And I'd like you to think about that as we go into this psalm. He seemed to say the attitude of Psalm 69 finds its fulfillment in the actions of Psalm 40. I think we will find, as we get into this, that what David was talking about, what he was thinking about, what he was praying about in Psalm 69, finds actions that we can encapsulate and incorporate into our lives during times of difficulty, during times of desperation. And so I think you'll find that David spent much time thinking about the actions that take place in Psalm 40. You've heard people say after experiencing a hardship, I just need to stay busy, or I just need to get back to work. That emotion, I think, finds it in a, a radical, powerful outlet for the believer when we come to this psalm. So let's jump in. Verses 1 through 3. David begins this psalm by saying, To the choir master, a psalm of David, I wait patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Excuse, excuse me, I said I wait. Past tense, that becomes important. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. As I began looking at this passage, it was interesting that there is a group of seven verbs in this passage. Have you picked up on those? There are seven, but the thing that is very interesting about this is the first one is passive, the other six are all active. You see, as we get into this, David begins by saying, I passively waited. The word for wait is intriguing, and it's one that is a little difficult for us to um, translate into English, and the easiest way to translate it is to think about it in this way. I waited, and I waited, and I waited. The idea of expectation, the idea that this did not come quick, that this was something that he was focused on, waiting for God to act. And so he says, I waited patiently. Now that's, that's intriguing, because if there's expectation, how do we wait expectantly and patiently at the same time? It would seem like that, that expectancy would create a desire to be doing 
David answers that with the six active verbs. There was a lot of action taking place here, and he recognized that. It was just not his actions. You see, the next six verbs are all things that, remind, that he was reminded of that were true of God in the past. Follow along with me with what he had done. Number one, this intriguing idea of he inclined himself to me. He inclined himself closely. Now what does that mean? That word is interesting because it's the idea of someone stooping over, bowing down so that they can hear somebody whispering, getting their ear right next to them so that they can hear the softest sound. And it has the, in, in, the idea of intimacy, of love, of care, of taking the time to see someone in distress and inclining themselves, inclining their ears so they can hear the softest sound that they offer. He says, that's the first thing that God did. The second thing is that he heard my cry. There is nothing worse than feeling like God doesn't hear us. If you've been there, it's, it's terrible. And so it's important for us when we go into a difficult time to say, okay, I'm going to remember those times when I knew God was listening, and I'm going to focus on those. But then we come to number three, and we have another remarkable phrase because it says, he led me out. He brought me up out of this miry clay, out of this desolate area. The other night I watched a, a television show about wild animals caught in unusual circumstances. A show about people who happened to be in what they described as the right place at the wrong time. They were remarkable stories caught on video of animals in the wild performing remarkable acts. They even had some experts that tried to explain why they did these unusual things. In one, a baby elephant, you may have heard about this, it's become uh, fairly common to, to see videos about this type of thing, but the response I thought was very intriguing. In one, a baby elephant had walked down into this gully to get a drink, only to realize that there wasn't any water left down there, it was just mud. And as a matter of fact, this mud was, was thick and, and clingy and almost like quicksand. And so this baby elephant very quickly became trapped in the bottom of this gully. And so as the video begins, you hear the screams of this baby elephant knowing they can't get out. They're stuck. And for a period of time, the video watches as the herd of elephants comes back for this baby elephant, comes up to the edge, and several of these huge animals gather around the edges of this gully, and it's almost like they're going, you got any idea? What are we going to do? Uh, you almost get that feeling. And then kind of out of the back, this, this huge, uh, I'm, I'm sure she had to be a matriarch of, of the herd, uh, this huge elephant comes up, kind of pushes the others off to the side, 
gets down and begins to work with this baby elephant. And she begins and she puts her trunk underneath the, the baby's stomach and tries to lift it up, and that doesn't quite work. And so after a period of time, she works her way around the edge of the gully and she gets behind that baby elephant, reaches down with her trunk, and I found out, I never knew this before, an elephant has 100,000 muscles in its trunk. She uses them. She reaches down behind that baby elephant and she begins to push. And all of a sudden, it's just like that baby elephant kind of pops up out of that gully, lands on its nose, shakes its head, gets up, and starts wandering off. An intriguing story, and we're going to come back to that in a minute, but there's another one uh, that happened shortly after that, and it was of a full-size water buffalo who had gotten trapped as well. And a wounded lion, intriguingly enough, was able to come up to it, simply walk down into the mud, climb onto the back of this water buffalo, work its way to the front, grab it by the jugular, and very quickly kill it. The water buffalo could do absolutely nothing except scream. You see, that's the type of situation David is describing as God removing him from. A place where all hope was gone, where he was completely vulnerable. He had no recourse. He had nothing else that he could do. And God responds with the next two things. He put him firmly on solid ground. That's pretty simple, a, a return to, to solid, firm footing. But the next one goes with it. He not only put him firmly, but he made steady. If we go back to that video of the elephant, uh, shortly after the baby pops up out of that goalie, the elephant that had helped, the mature elephant, didn't walk away, didn't move away. Instead, she kept her trunk right next to the side of that baby elephant as it kind of wandered its way away from that hole because it was so worn out, it was so disoriented, it was headed right back to the same hole. And so that mother elephant said, no, that's not where you want to go, and slowly worked it away from the position of peril. You see, I think that's what we find, that David says, this is what God has done in the past. But there's one other one that he says as well, and this one is very interesting because the sixth action is he placed a song in my mouth. You see, this has nothing to do with safety. This has nothing to do with future actions. It is simply a song of praise, and it's not from David. It's a song that God had put on his lips, in his mouth. And so David begins by going over that part of the process, of remembering what had happened in the past. But look at the result. You see, the other thing we have to look at is, okay, what was the result of this? Where did this go? 
And it's very interesting because the next phrase is quite unique as well. There are three actions that will take place, but it's no longer in the past. If you read verse 3, we are given three actions, and it says this, many will see, many will fear, many will trust. Now, there's a couple of things that are important for us to think about with that. First of all, it had nothing to do with David. As he began looking at those actions that God had done for him during a difficult time, the results of those actions did not come back to him. You see, the result of the whole thing, while God was doing these six things, was that other people were being impacted. If we can go into a time of difficulty looking for the way in which this time can impact those around us, it will help us have the proper attitude. It's not just about us. There may be something that we're being asked to go through, a difficult time, where God is saying, this is not about you. I have something for those around you to learn. But the idea builds in the next verses. In verses 4 and 5, David now becomes active. In these verses, he is no longer patiently waiting. He is no longer uh, waiting for something to happen. He is now actively searching something. You see, the action that is directed here is interesting because, again, it is not actions toward himself. It is him looking out at those around him. And as he looks at what God has done, he moves then to, okay, now lift up my eyes, open my eyes, begin looking around me. What has God done for others? You see, it's very easy to get stuck in ourselves during difficult times. Why is God doing this? What am I here for? Why does this have to happen? And if we can begin saying, okay, what's happening with others? What is God doing with those around? It is well worth the time. You see, David looks at others and he sees two things. Number one, he sees that the blessed trust God. Those that have come to understand how to get through difficult times have come to understand that he has a plan, that he has a purpose. And so David is able to look at others and say, okay, I see that they're trusting God through the difficult times. He also sees that the blessed do not turn to the proud who follow lies. Another very intriguing concept. Isn't it amazing the lies that the world tries to tell us are the things we need to do during difficult times? What is, what is one of the main ones? If you're going through a difficult time, well, you need more money. That will help. It will protect you from difficult times. The truth is, most of the times when you get more money, it destroys peace and joy. 
Or they'll say, you know, your family or your job, that's where you need to turn during difficult times. Yet the truth is, those both end up being part of the problem if we come to rely on them. And so we see the world struggling with that. But once again, David comes back with a result. What happens as I watch the people around me, as they're trusting God, as they're not being led astray by those who are telling lies? What is the result? Two things. God, Yahweh, has done wondrous things. We see it all over. Here's these people that I've been watching, and one after another are describing the wonderful things that God is doing in their lives. God does wondrous things. But he goes even beyond that, and he says, not only are they wondrous things, they are without number. I can't even count the things that I have seen other people experiencing around me. Then we come to verses 6 through 10, and now we see a response where David begins to take action. And look at the actions that he now takes. They are very interesting because he says, it's not this, but this. First one, not sacrificing, not giving offerings. That's not going to help. But listening. God has given me an ear to hear what he has to say. He begins listening. Number two, there isn't this religious platitude taking place where he goes through these actions. Instead, it is the very simple action of coming. And this is where we find uh, that passage that refers to Jesus Christ as the perfect example of in the very worst times, Jesus Christ said, I desire to obey my heavenly Father. I desire to do what he does. I come my heavenly father the perfect example but he also talks about the fact that he is not keeping silent huh. during this difficult time when it's so easy to be quiet and not talk to pull within ourselves david says not going to do that i am going to share with the congregation i'm going to share with other believers as it were and there are three things that he does. He speaks about faithfulness, he speaks about salvation, and he speaks about love. All of these things that God is, things that reflect on who the person of God is. None of these things requires a feeling of peace. You don't have to have a certain feeling to be able to talk about faithfulness, to talk about the wonder of salvation, to talk about the love of God. They're simply true. And we can share those with others even when we don't even hardly feel it ourselves. We can listen, we can come to God, we can share with others regardless of how we feel. And evidently, David was able to do that in the very worst situations of life. 
in verses 11 and 12, for the first time, we really come to the purpose for the psalm. If you didn't know what this psalm was all about, you could go through this first section and really be asking, okay, what's, what's going on? There's nothing said, really, about why he is composing this song, why he is sharing these ideas, until in verses 11 and 12, it comes out. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. In verse 12, oh, here's the purpose. For evils have compassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. You see, there's two things that he says is, is in a part of this terrible time. And interestingly enough, it's not the actions that we will run into in just a minute. Instead, now he looks inside. Now he says, okay, I've experienced evil. Now, what, what does that mean? This is a remarkable word because it can cover lots of different things. A wickedness, depravity, misfortune, disaster, all of these fall under the word evil. And he says, there's evil that I've experienced all around me. Now, that doesn't help us get a real good idea of what he's really worried about until we get to the second part. And in the second part, he goes on from there and says his own sin is part of the problem. My sin is without numbers, more than the hairs of my head. Is that what we're supposed to do during difficult times? David said he needed to look inside at the condition of his heart. And I think that's important. Because once we begin to see ourselves as we truly are, we will not say, God, how could you put me here? Now, we've put ourselves there, for one thing. And for another thing, we have no right to ask for certain things. So even though we will see in just a moment that people wanted to kill him, people were wanting to hurt him, they were jeering and mocking him, he doesn't start there. He starts with his own life. And he says that the real issue was his fallen condition. No pride, no arrogance, simple surrender. Then in verse 13, finally, three quarters of the way into this psalm, we finally have him asking for help for the first time. Now, remember, he's, he's talked about what God has done before, but now for the first time, he simply comes to the point where he says, God, help me. In a variety of experiments, the most famous from 1972, a man called Walter Mischel studied how young children delayed gratification. In an experiment, a child from the ages of four to six was given a marshmallow, and it was placed, wasn't given to them, it was placed beside them, and they were told, if you will wait a certain amount of time, you'll get two in a little bit. 
And then they studied the responses of these young people, these young kids. Some of them grabbed the treat immediately, ate the one, didn't worry about the second one. But many of them tried to find ways to resist the temptation to grab that one. And so they talked about um, describing children as singing, uh, of holding, hiding their head in their arms, stamping their feet, getting away and playing over here, some of them even praying, and on some occasions even falling asleep. Now that's interesting, but what I found more interesting is Mitchell and his team tracked many of the children through high school. And these same children, they began to find that the ones that were able to wait rather than taking that first bite scored higher on the SAT, they tended to do better in school, and they scored higher on IQ tests. And so he began saying, okay, what's going on? They were even socially more competent. So they waited a little bit longer and they went back to that same group at age 40 and they found that the two marshmallows later children had higher incomes, stronger marriages, happier careers. Now, all of that to say that Batterson, the one that was writing about this, concludes goal-directed, self-imposed delay of gratification is a powerful predictor of future success in any endeavor. How patient are we to put up with the difficult times? Are we willing to think that God has something wonderful for us? In verses 14 and 15, he goes on to address what David wants in response to these people that were hurting him. Verse 14, shame for those who desire my death. Verse 14, again, humiliation for those who desire my harm. And in verse 15, dismay for those who scoffed. Aha, aha, I knew that was coming. I knew that was going to happen to you. His response is, Father, may they find dismay. Now, there's a couple of things that are interesting about this as we, as we draw this to a close. And that is, number one, his, his desire is not for the destruction of these people. His desire is much more that their wishes would be confounded, that it would be turned back on them. Think about that for just a minute. And then secondly, this psalm, which is accurately applied to Jesus Christ, who knew no sin can ultimately be seen in the way that he desired nothing more than the best for those who wanted to destroy him. Now, if we think about those ideas and what David is attempting to do here, we have to move on to verse 16 to really find where his mind is at. Because you see, in verse 16, we have the culmination of the matter. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. That's where he's headed. God, if you put me in this situation, I believe that you can use it for others' benefit. I believe that you have a purpose, that you have a plan. And those things 
we can come up with before the situation begins and say, this is the way I plan on responding the next time things get tough. Now you'll notice that I haven't covered verse 17. What do we do with that? Where is David ultimately heading? And as we look at that verse, I would like us to go back for just a minute and think about verse 1. Because interestingly enough, in verse 1, part of inspired scripture is the words to the choir master, a psalm of David. Why do we need to know that? Most of these things, a lot of them, we don't even know exactly what it means. This one we do. It was meant to be an instrumental piece. So, let me conclude by having you think about it this way. Think about it as a piece of music, Psalm 40. All right, we're going to start over here, and the conductor is going to raise his baton, and when it comes down, the orchestra explodes in sound, and we hear this incredible uh, drums beating. We hear the horns playing at a... At a Troy, what's a really loud sound? Forti forte, fortissimo. All right, it comes out booming right to begin with. All right, and, and David is saying with these first verses, this is a fact. This is what I'm going to talk to you about. And we hear this incredible theme given us at the beginning of the music. And then in the next part, the second stanza, the conductor begins to weave into it other parts and other ideas. And, and we come down off of that fortissimo and we go down into the quieter music and we begin to hear the various instruments interacting with each other, reaffirming the message in different ways. And it gets quieter, it becomes introspective. And it's like the conductor is saying, do you understand? Do you realize what is going on? Listen to what is happening. And the music goes for some period. And, and during the third stanza where, where he is beginning to look at other people, is he beginning to decide how to act? We have that music continuing and now we have Harmonies being introduced. We have other ideas all building upon that theme. And it's the idea that there's more to it than what we see at the outset. And then we come to the grand finale. We come to the last part of the hymn, the piece of music, excuse me. And once again, there's this building and building and building to where there's the climax. And this climax is David no longer wallowing in what has happened, but saying, this is what God's going to do. I trust him. I believe him. I know he has my best. And the piece of music concludes with that simple phrase, as for me... I am poor and needy, 
But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my rescue. You are my help. You are my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. My prayer is that we can respond during difficult times with that idea that David shares with us in Psalm 40. Bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, none of this is easy, but Father, it doesn't need to be easy because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us who can help us to remember these things. So Father, I would pray that you would use these ideas in our lives, that you would speak to us through the wonder of what David had learned when he says, I can rely on what God will do even during the difficult time. Father, thank you that you are great, and when you respond those times of hardship, it is to make your name great. It's not about us. It wasn't about David. It's all about you. Father, help us to have that attitude during difficult times. This we pray in Jesus' name.